following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good morning. Praise your name. Blessed be your name. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. You continue to remind us every day of who you are. You are great, good, gracious, loving, patient, forgiving God. And we are so, so thankful, God. God, as we come before you today, as we gather We know you are with us. Holy Spirit, we know you are here. Please, Lord, touch each one. Forgive us, God, for the times that uh, we've held on to things. We've lived contrary, where we've gotten caught up in the world. Cleanse our hearts, our minds, Lord. Refresh us that you might use us for your glory. Lord, I ask that you would take this broken vessel. Speak through me, Lord, that I might share your message do your will, give you glory in all we do. Be with those today that are hurting, maybe in silence, or maybe those who are struggling, maybe those who need comfort, those who need peace, freedom from anxiety. Lord, you are the great comforter. You are the great healer. You are the, the answer to all that we need. Remind us, Lord. Help us to remember, Lord Jesus, what you've done how much you love us, that we might share that blessing with others. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you praise for this day and all that's going to happen today and tomorrow, Lord. Whatever it may be, we want to serve you, do everything unto you. And it's in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So our verses today uh, is actually James chapter 4, 1 through 10. Uh, If you would be so kind, if you're able to uh, stand and let's give honor to the Word of God as we read His precious Word today. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. So we have been, our theme here this year has been dwell, and uh, each month I've had the privilege to share that message, and uh, so as we look back just a little bit, uh, we we discussed um, Jesus' commandments, his love language, that if you obey his commandments, you'll demonstrate how much you love him. Uh, We recognize that we can do nothing without him. Because Jesus made it very clear that that was the case. He also gave us a reason to celebrate because despite the trials we have, he mentions very clearly that he has overcome the world. 
in John 16. And last month, we talked about the fact that he's praying for us, that God is praying for unity of the body. He's constantly showing us our gracious Father. And so today, we're going to shift to James. Before I do that, let me just kind of ask you, you know, every month, you know, are, you, are you taking stock in your time with the Lord? Are you, are you looking at your dwell time? Uh, that intentional time with God. How's that been going? Uh, we are almost done with August. Unbelievable. Uh, and what kept coming to me as, uh, you know, the school year started and I, and, you know, the, the, the distractions, the possibilities for distractions. The Lord has kept saying, guard your prayer time. Guard it. Guard it with your life. So if you've had some trouble with that, if things have gotten static or if it's been a little flattened out, or maybe you're feeling comfortable, it's a dangerous place to be. Guard your prayer time. Be intentional. Continue to dwell. Let it grow. Because you know what? Come December 31st, it's not the end. We might have a new theme for next year. We don't know what that is. But dwelling in the Lord and just really being open to Him dwelling in us will never change. So what these skills and disciplines that you started to, to grow and put together this year that the Lord is helping you with, continue to do that. Okay, so we're delving into the book of James. Uh, let me just uh, tell you a little bit. Personally, this is, uh, this is one of the first books that my, my father ever introduced me to. Uh, when he became uh, a believer, um, maybe because it was easier to read, not sure. Um, but it's always held a special place, and it's so relatable. Um, it's just such an excellent uh, description of life. Uh, living life according to Christ and um, such practicality in it. Um, so many examples. Uh, he gives us examples of, of faith, enduring faith, um, being a doer of the word, not just a listener of the word or a hearer of the word, uh, giving us instructions on visiting orphans and widows and not playing favorites. Uh, things that we probably take for granted on a daily basis. But let's look at the context here for a second. What is James? Who is James? James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, it's widely believed that he's the author of this book. Uh, at the time, he actually wasn't a follower of Jesus. Uh, uh, it was after. And after witnessing the Lord's resurrected body, uh, he became one of the leaders. Uh, he became pro prolific, if you will. Um, uh, he was singled out by both Peter and Paul for his, uh, his uh, being such a miraculous, prolific uh, disciple uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, this book will be uh, clear in that it'll be give, give us uh, some, some opportunities to understand that we don't get to just keep it to ourselves that our relationship with God is something that we take in and then send out. That the Spirit moves in us to go share it with others. It's not for us to just kind of hold close to our chest and just keep it. Um, he gave everything for us and that we should take it out with. He's going to address some real issues. He's talking to other believers. He's talking to the 12 tribes of the of the dispersion, uh, which is really um, the churches that were outside of this region. Uh, there's Jewish people for centuries have been dispersed for various reasons. Uh, and that's who he's, he's writing directly to them. So these are, these are people who are believers. Um, but he's got some things to address in chapter four. And so let's, let's go back to our memory verse uh, which is uh, the dwell verse for the month, James 4, 4 and 5, just uh, to remind us. He says, you adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of, to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So this chapter, chapter four, actually most of the Bibles have some title uh, given to it, calling it world, Warning Against Worldliness. Um, and so this is uh, the point, that despite our desires and our cravings, he continues to provide us with grace, more and more grace, which is how he showed me this would be the title. The Lord of all creation, the ruler of the universe, offers us more and more grace each and every day. Praise God. So let's, let's dig into the, to the, to the text, uh, chapter, uh, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, for those of you who know that my previous life I was a lawyer, one of the first things they teach attorneys when they start law school is that a good lawyer never asks a question he doesn't already know the answer to. And I am fairly certain James knows the answer to this question. It is not that, is it not that your passions are at war within you? He knows the answer is absolutely. He's speaking of the conflict between believers. He's pointing out sinfulness, just like we are, at times, sinful. This goes all the way back to the fall when the perfection of creation was destroyed and disturbed, uh, we see the first severe conflict between Cain and Abel, and it continues to the present day. We see it on a daily basis. Now, G James speaks of wisdom all throughout. Uh, in chapter 1 and 5, he, he basically is explaining that if, you, if you're seeking wisdom, ask God for it. Uh, in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, it's a lead-in to chapter 4. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good contact, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is referring to godly wisdom. It's coming from above. Sincere, sincerity, sincerity of your heart. God knows your motives. In, this, in the believer, there cannot be selfish ambition or jealousy or false, empty boasting. How are we doing with that? This leads to disorder and every vile practice. And he says, by the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. Believers bring righteousness, or that by bringing peace, believers obtain the reward, which is eternal life. By being sincere, by walking in the Spirit, those vile practices diminish, disappear. It creates unity and not disunity. And he's speaking to believers. So at this point in time, there's uh, one of the translations in, 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 this, in, in this book is using the word uh, hedonism. And he, uh, hedonism is something I think most of us know. It's just this position that takes the pursuit of pleasure very high. It's the primary motivating factor of life. Um, basically, pleasure is good. Uh, if it makes you happy, it must be okay, right? Uh, in, the, in the Greek, uh, uh, hedon translates to pleasure, enjoyment, delight. Pleasure is the chief goal of life. He points out that conflict comes from seeking pleasure as the chief goal of life. 
Does this mean we're supposed to be a bunch of sourpusses? I don't think so. But I think what he's suggesting is that the joy from our relationship with God is being squashed, squelched, pushed down because of our desires. Christian hedonism. The desire to have pleasure. Putting it above God. There's no question that being a Christian brings pleasure. It brings joy. There's also a a large section of believers who think if you're not walking around with a scowl on your face and a frown on your face that you're not spiritual enough. You know, that, that you're not experiencing the things of God unless you're in a in a, in a mode of sourness. I completely disagree with that. I'm just, there are quite a few. We should be the happiest people on the planet. When we realize that we needed a Savior, when God opened our eyes, and we recognized how wretched we were, that we should shout for joy. And we should have the desire to tell the world. How's that going? Now, I'm not going to trivialize this um, too much. Uh, uh, Brother Colin has spoken about this in the past, and I agree 100%, but we're on the greatest team in history, the most dominant team, but also the most loving, gracious team. Better than the 27 Yankees. Better than the 80s Edmonton Oilers. And Matt's not here today to talk hockey, but <laughs> these dynasties that existed in sports, they get put up on a pedestal. I'm guilty of it too. Sadly, I'm a Steelers fan. We cheer for our teams. We put them up. We celebrate them. We, are, we want them to keep going, keep winning. And we neglect the greatest victor in history who changed the entire course of history, Jesus. So today we're all on team, Jesus. I have a close brother who he moved away from this area and I just... Every single time he posts something, he says, go Jesus. And I love that. And so I'm taken from my man Randy today. Go Jesus. Exclamation point. Our chief goal should be to know God. Our chief goal should be to know him and to enjoy him because he's given us everything. As Jesus said, we can do nothing without him. Our joy in the journey comes from him. But when we seek worldly pleasures, when we seek those things that we think we're entitled to, it creates conflict. We see the glimpse of that in verse 1. Now we move to verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And earlier in chapter 1, when he, when he spoke, James wrote about asking. If you seek wisdom, ask for it with a sincere heart, not like a double-minded man, which he refers to again later in this section of verses. He's trying to give us a wake-up call. And let's be honest, there's a lot of cultural things that you know, make what we want to just make our lives make us feel warm and fuzzy. Verse 2 is not that verse. He's referring to murder, not literal killing. He is trying to wake us up. And when you look to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21, Jesus addresses this issue very clearly. You've heard it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to to the hell of fire. Whoa. That's heavy. This has got to be a wake-up call. This is not sticks and stones will break, you know, may break my bones. Names will never, no. This is the Lord calling us out saying, look, if your anger, if your hatred for another, it's as if, as if you're murdering them and you will be liable to judgment. This is what James is also spelling out here. He says you, you, you do not receive because you do not ask. Guard your prayer time. Prayerlessness. Do not ask. Prayerlessness. Dwell. Remain. Abide. Stay close. Make it a priority. It has to be a discipline. The Lord cannot literally, he probably could physically lift you out of bed, but he doesn't. It's your choice. Get up. Guard your prayer time. Verse 3 takes it to another step. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So in verse 2, you're not even asking because you're so consumed with other things. In verse 3, you're asking, but your motives are selfish, prideful. It starts with me. Social media, how's that look? It's all about me. And there's some good. No, I'm not throwing it all down the drain. But we get consumed with those things. He points out that when we actually ask, we pray for what we want. This is not God's design. This is not God's intention. Our purpose in prayer should be to have God's will be done. Even if we don't like it. Because we know that, that's, that God knows what's best for us. And, and, and from time to time, take a step back too. Take a step back and look at your prayer life. Psalm 37, it's not in the slides, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Your prayer life is lining up with his will, not yours. And sometimes the things that we might think that are actually lining up with God's will, we need to take a step back and recognize that maybe we're not. I pray for him to be saved. I pray for her to be saved. What's your motive? Jesus teaches us how to pray. Thankfully, in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. And before that, in verse 7, he explains. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for their Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven, your will be done. What's overlooked here is Verse 7, God the Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Do you, do, you, do you approach your prayer life with that mode, that mindset? He's looking for you, for us, to line up our desires with His, to seek His will, His kingdom, on earth as it is in heaven. Many of you know Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's one of my favorites. He had a famous song way back called The Change. And basically the whole beginning of the song focuses on all the things that we do. 
the t-shirts and the magnets and the wristbands. And I'm not besmirching any of that. I am not because it's about what's in here. And what about the change, he says? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change? Can somebody tell the difference between you and your life, my life, and your next door neighbor? Or are we consumed with the world and worldliness? Thy will be done, Lord. Pastor Steve Brown said way, many years ago, he says, when, when you die, when that day comes, when your earthly body is, is no longer, and people are at your funeral, let them not be surprised that you were a Christian. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This is taken in the wrong direction and out of context time and again. This is not I get what I want. This is where I'm praying and I'm asking God to, to demonstrate, to reveal to me what he wants. And James is saying the same thing. We have a, he a hedonistic heart, selfish, prideful. We need to be take some very serious introspection. And trust me, I'm first in line here. Let's make no mistake, okay? Um, the awesome thing is we know he's there. We know he goes before us because he promises that. And what is it that's causing all this? Worldliness. Concerns and affairs of things of life. And God is calling us to spiritual, eternal affairs. This is the cause of conflict, seeking the world and all of its trappings. I'll say one thing about uh, Buddhists, um, and I you know, teach world history, so we talk about these things. But Buddha spoke very clearly about all life is suffering which is not entirely true. But what he did say was the reason why is because of all the entanglements and all the cravings and all the desires. That's what causes suffering. And I think James is talking about something very similar. It is. It is the, it's the trappings of the world that pull us away from our relationship with God. Our mission, it separates us. It's as if we are committing adultery with our bridegroom. And we go to verse 4, and he addresses that very point. He calls out, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's about as in your face as you can get. He's calling believers adulterers. In some of the translations, it's adulterous, the feminine twist, with that being that we're the bride. By being consumed with the affairs of the world, we are at odds with each other, with ourselves, and certainly we're in direct conflict with God. He calls us and says, we're an enemy of God. Again, that's one of those, whoa. That's one of those whoa moments. At least for me. There are other examples throughout Scripture than what I'm going to reveal today, but uh, Israel was essentially the bride to God. In Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32, it states, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The bride of God, 
Israel essentially was committing spiritual adultery. Jesus is our heavenly bridegroom. In John chapter 3, 29 and 30. The one who has the, bri- who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must increase. Decrease, sorry. Brain fade there. We are the bride of Christ. And when we turn our hearts away from God and we long for the world and the desires of those things, the newest, shiniest thing, we are committing adultery. And those things are the things that are causing conflicts with others, other believers. Whether it be at work, on the road, at home, we get controlled by the passions and possessions. When we begin to love the world in a way that is in conflict with God, those conflicts enter into our relationships. Now we're going to get to a little bit brighter picture here in just a minute, but I do want to divert for a second because we're coming into the election season full swing. And I will say that the risk of damaging your witness is very high if we don't stay connected and dwell. We get caught up and consumed with the affairs of the world, which Scripture clearly tells us to avoid. There's a fine line between seeking the will of God and seeking to fight for freedom in the name of God. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, should bring clarity to each of us as we enter into this potentially contentious season. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is so challenging. Our media has made, you're either on this side or that side, you're either right or you're wrong, but there's no authority except for God. How do we avoid this? Dwell. Dwell. Remain. Stay close. Stay in the word. Guard your prayer time. No matter what, God is sovereign. We have to come back to that truth. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is no pur- of a no purpose The scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, when we become believers, the Holy Spirit is in us. Praise God. This is not the spirit he's referring to. He's talking about the spirit with a small S that is actually kind of creeped in, that's taking over. And God is jealous for that spirit which is dwelling in us now instead of the Holy Spirit dwelling fully. That's a good kind of jealousy. That the creator of the universe, the ruler of the universe, of all life, is jealous for us. That he wants us to turn back to him, to seek him. He knows every hair on our head. He's got them numbered. And he did give us his spirit That is the spirit he wants us to have, to dwell inside us. Our devotion, our commitment to him. So application point, as straightforward as James was saying and asking, are you finding yourself committing adultery, spiritual adultery? Seeking the pleasure of this life outside of God in such a way that it's distracting you from your walk. We know that in marriage, fidelity and commitment are, are the, the, that's, the, that's the foundation of the vows we take, the promise. 
It takes three when you're married. And then as time goes on, what gets in the way? It's no different. It's those things that we desire, those expectations that we have. And that's in any relationship that we have with other believers. What's in the way? Is it our love for God? Has it grown colder or more lukewarm? Have we become a friend of the world and an enemy of God? Even in the slightest sense, guard your prayer time. Surrender to the Holy Spirit because he's moving, he's tugging, he's pulling, he's pursuing, he never gives up. But the, the, the aspects of this world that can crowd us to a point where we squeeze God out, it's common. Jesus knew of it when he spoke of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The seed... The word is being choked out by the world. How easy is it for our desire for God to get choked out by the desires for the world? To slip in selfishness and pridefulness, prayerlessness. Oh, I'm good. I'll pray later. I'll spend my time later before I go to bed. But there's good news for these questions that James is asking. There's a cure. There's a a panacea. God gives more grace. That's the message. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is reiterated in Proverbs 3.34. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The cure is the grace of God. More and more grace. Some translations say greater grace in that verse. You know, let's differentiate for a second. This is not saving grace. Because we're talking to believers who've already been saved. Or James is. This is common everyday grace. The, the, the famous song, Amazing Grace, the great, one of the greatest songs ever made, ever written. Talks about saving a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. This is not that grace. That's almost understood in this scripture. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Nothing we do saves us. God already did the work. We just trust and believe. Have faith. Our salvation is all because of the saving grace of God. Unmerited favor given freely for us. We need to remind ourselves of that each day. That's good news. But we do need daily grace. We need grace for living. Every morning, probably every hour, if we're honest. That also is good news because God provides more and more grace. Every day we need it for the activities of every single day. For our hurts, for our hang-ups, for our questions, our concerns, our insecurities. When we're under attack by the enemy, God provides more and more grace. Praise the Lord. In the book of John, chapter 1, verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. It actually translates to grace overflowing with more grace. It's almost never ending. In Romans chapter 5, 20 and 21. 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is where it started, the saving grace of God. And it continues to overflow every single day. Where sin overflows, grace overflows even more. That's awesome. Encouraging. That's what stirred me because we, we take it for granted. I take it for granted. I want to speak for you. We have to be on guard. We've got to stay in our prayer life. Now, can we abuse this grace? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And I think that also is some of the context here what James is referring to. He asks those questions knowing the answer because that grace has been abused. Don't do that. Romans 6, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then, Paul says? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's exactly what it is, though. It's sin. Spiritual adultery, and this is an issue with our culture. Adultery, divorce, taken much more lightly than it used to be. We need God's sustaining grace every day, sustaining us, overwhelming us. We must dwell. We must dwell in his word. We must dwell in, in the community we're in. Experience his unending grace every day. Even when we think we have things under control, I said this earlier, that's when we get into that point of complacency and that slow fade. I liken it to the beach. You know, I may have said this before, I can't recall, but if you're on the beach and you got your blanket and your chair and your cooler full of Cheetos, and you go out into the water and you've got your ball or your boogie board or whatever. And there's a pretty good current that particular day and you have your back to your blanket and then you turn around and you look and your blanket's way over there. That's an example for us that I like to refer, you know, that slow fade. We've just kind of moved with the current. We've kind of slowly moved away from God, the blanket, our home base. And the next thing you know, we're way over here because we think we're good. We're okay. Be careful. Guard your prayer time. Now we see the example of Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he talks about challenges. And this applies to us as well. And he says in, in verses 1 through 10, he says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. 
We see Paul's talking about this thorn in his flesh. I don't think we really know what that was exactly. We t- he discusses a supernatural experience that he went through. But he, but he recognized that God didn't take it away. It wasn't God's will to take it away. Paul didn't like it. He made that clear. He pleaded with God to take it away. But Paul came to the recognition that maybe this was to wake him up to keep him from becoming conceited or proud. And the Lord was very clear that he my grace is sufficient for you. That's all you need. Our normal prayer context, let's be honest, and I'm not, I'm speaking to myself, is we have a list. We want things to be taken away, just like Paul did. God might be challenging you. He might be humbling you. You might have a thorn in your flesh. Maybe it's not a physical ailment. Maybe it's a neighbor or somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody in this room. But God said no. It wasn't in his will. He doesn't reveal his will to us all the time. But he does reveal that his grace is sufficient. Paul realized his strength is made perfect in his weakness. That's not our nature. Our earthly nature is to be competitive, to be strong, to be independent, to do my own thing. I only need God when I'm weak. It flips it completely upside down. It changes our paradigm completely. So application, what is your posture in moments of struggle and challenge? Times of pain or difficulty? Are we prone to turning to God in his overwhelming, overflowing grace? Or are we willing to find worldliness as the answer? Are we willing to follow the example of Paul who was moved to the throne of grace by this thorn in his side. What an example for us. When we feel like we can't take it anymore, remember this. And maybe that's right now. God's with you. We reach the point where that thorn is just, this is the end. I can't take it anymore. God's just getting started. More and more grace overflowing. He's with you. He likes you. He's fond of you. He loves you. So, how do we experience this overflowing grace? Thankfully, James provides us with some clear answers from verses 7 through 10. In 7, it's submit to God. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The essence of sin is pride and selfishness, entitlement. We're either living our way or God's way. We're either after his will or my will. Are we willing to submit to God, get back to basics, guarding your prayer time, dwelling in him, or not? This verse is a command. Submit yourselves. It's not suggesting. It's the answer. He will flee from you. That's the promise. And I honestly, you know, as I was studying and thinking about this, can you imagine the enemy running away? You're seeing the backside of the enemy. Go, Jesus. Praise God. He will literally flee from you. But we have to be active. Submit ourselves daily to his word, our prayer time, this community of believers. When people ask me where do I attend church, it's, uh, it's you know, there's certain ways that people want to hear the answer. 
It's hard to explain this place <laughs> until you've been here. You know. um, praise God for that. Um, remember this, life is a battleground, not a playground. There is a spiritual battle going on every day. Pastor Colin eloquently for three weeks gave sermons and, and preached profound messages on the armor of God. And Fred even, Pastor Fred gave a message as well. And it's the same. We're not only on defense here. We are on offense as well. We're going out into that mission field. Onward, Christian soldiers. Sharing the gospel. Ephesians 6 is clear on those issues about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. This is not just on defense. We're on the greatest team ever. Team Jesus. We have the tools in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Do we believe that? Praise God. It's true. James continues to provide us with answers. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's that word again, double-minded. This again, this is a command. It's not a suggestion to draw near to God. If you want to avoid worldliness, if you want to be in line with God's will, draw near. Let the Spirit reign, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be proud. Humble yourself. Draw near. Submit. Remember the prodigal son in Luke 15. The son, the son, as we know this story, demanded his inheritance while his father was still alive. Which, of course, maybe you recognize that that means that he basically was acting as if his father was already dead. And we know that he wasted it. He literally ended up in a pig pen. Destitute, down and out, living with pigs. He comes to his senses. He returns to his home and is going to ask for forgiveness. In Luke 15, 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The key here for me that just stands out so, so perfectly is that while he was still a long way off, the father was longing and looking for his son. The son took that first step, though, didn't he? That's us. We got to take that first step. God is pursuing us, but he's not going to force us to do anything. When we take that first step, God runs to us just like the prodigal father. Imagine what the son might have been thinking as he's approaching his father, who he obviously can see coming towards him. What kind of trouble am I in? What kind of scolding or verbal whiplashing am I going to get? No way. The father throws his arms around him and they had a celebration. God is running for us. Take that first step. If we get off track, if we get caught up in the world, grace is sufficient. In the last part of verse 8, we see James spelling out how we should respond. We should take action. We should cleanse our hands, literally taking action. We should come to the table of forgiveness. Ask God to cleanse our hearts, to change our minds. To ask him to literally invade our entire soul. Holy Spirit, just come to us and, ex and just invade. Wash over us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Praise God. Verse 9 might hurt your feelings a little bit. Hang in there. It gets better. 
Verse 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Is God telling us to be miserable? Actually, he kind of is. Hate to break it to you. Me too. But when? Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those that mourn. They shall be comforted. We ought to be broken and feel wretched when we recognize how we've fallen short. That's what he's saying. We should be miserable, but it's temporary. The comfort comes in the joy that we have in the Lord. The mercy is being restored and renewed every day. After we weep and we genuinely repent, a sincere heart, we should be filled with joy. King David was a man after God's own heart. But he was also a literal adulterer and a murderer. He lost his joy. He got away from the God, from the God that he loves. And he got dried up inside. Is that not us when we fail God? Do we feel like we can't come back to church because we've got to get cleaned up and get right first? Are we dry inside at times? Psalm 32, verse 4. David says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But he genuinely repented. That he, he knew that he had sinned against God and God alone. And in Psalm 51, 12, he asks for restoration. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's sustaining. It's not temporary. A willing spirit is upholding us. He lost his joy. At times, we probably do too, if we're being honest. But he was restored. He repented. He was sincere. He was humble. He submitted himself. He drew near to God, and God drew near to him. What an example for us. Psalm 126 Verse 6, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We are restored. His grace is sufficient. It's overflowing. It's overwhelming. And when we submit and we commit to dwelling with the Lord, doesn't mean it's all sunshine and rainbows. There will be challenges but he will sustain us. If we have thorns in our flesh, if we humble ourselves, we'll be exalted. That's the good news. We look at verse 10 as James speaks to that very point. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. Praise the Lord. That is so encouraging. God knows your heart. He knows your intentions. He knows your desires. He knows before you ask him. You've got to take that first step. The application point is don't wait to be humbled. Don't wait for God to humble you. Humble yourself. Be joyful. Dwell in him. Experience the miracle of grace. And it is a miracle. Really. There's so much that we take for granted in our daily lives that are miracles, literal miracles. Breathing? Sure. We have so much. We've been given so much. We've been given the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. God of the universe is coming after us. He's encouraging us. He's exalting us. Are you kidding me? And so something came to mind this week. It's a song and a poem. And I kind of paraphrased it a bit, but it's, it's a prayer. I'm waiting for my life to change. When the waters stir, you rearrange me. 
Just one touch is all I need. I have nothing much but the wounds I feel. I've come to find the help of the miracle man, savior, healer. I'm standing at the feet of the miracle maker. I'm staring in the face of the miracle maker. I'm walking in the shoes of my miracle maker. I'm standing with the faith of a miracle maker who was and is and is to come. Thank you, Jesus, our miracle maker who made a way when there was no way. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.